Hello and welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guests are Christos and Ruth Fletcher Gage. As professional writers, the Gages have worked on a number of projects across many media platforms. They've written comic books like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Lion of Rora, video games like the Captain America Super Soldier mobile game, and most notably television shows like Law & Order SVU. Their most recent project is writing for Marvel's Daredevil, a new show on Netflix. In this conversation, they discuss writing across many media platforms, working within the popular and often secretive Marvel Universe, and how they see the role of writers changing in the media ecosystem. They spoke on October 29th, 2015, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings, everyone. Happy to see a very full house today. Uh, Welcome to RTF347C, otherwise called Media Industry Conversations. For those of you who haven't been here before, you probably see the speakers coming up flashing along here today. I'm thrilled to be joined by two guests, collaborators on a number of projects. Ruth Fletcher Gage and Christos Gage. And I'm just going to do a brief introduction of them, but we'll walk through more of their background and experiences over the next hour and a half or so. Before we do that, I want to thank my TAs, uh, Kyle Rather and Tim Piper, and also my colleague in teaching this course, Cindy McCreary, the Department of Radio, TV, Film, and the College of Communication. Okay, so. Uh, gosh, there's so much to say. Your bios are so impressive. Uh, and you've worked in so many different media forms that I hope we can kind of walk through your experiences across um, all of them. But just here's a little bit of a taste uh, if you haven't read their bio, bios that are on the website as far as what Ruth and Christos have done. Um, both of them got their MFAs at the American Film Institute and have uh, since then worked in gaming, uh, cumulatively gaming, comics, theater, television, uh, politics, uh, development. I, I feel like I'm still leaving things out. It's kind of amazing. And so Christos has written for a variety of comics, a lot for Marvel, uh, include, and also uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, continuing that on past the TV series in the comic book form. Uh, both of them have also written for uh, Law and Order SVU uh, and Numbers, right? Uh, and Christos has written for a number of video games, including Captain America Super Soldier and Iron Man 3 for mobile platforms, which I'm interested in hearing yes. about that. Uh, Ruth has written uh, with Christos on several features in genre films, including The, the Breed and Paradox. So, uh, And recently, I brought their beautiful book in. They published their own creator-owned. Uh, own press. Own press. Well, we do own them. Well, we do own them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't want to leave that open. Okay, Only Press, <laughs> and the artist is Jackie Lewis, yes. uh, but they co-authored it, um, and it, it's a beautiful book. Thank you. Uh, so I, I pass it around, but I don't want it to disappear. So <laughs> come, come and look at it. Uh, and let's see, most recently, and of course, why probably a lot of you are interested uh, today, and we'll probably focus on a bit more, uh, writing for Daredevil on Netflix. And so lots of ground to cover. Uh, and it, hopefully today we'll get to a little bit about uh, your career trajectory, 
as well as uh, your roles and responsibilities as writers uh, and how those are different across different media. I'm very interested to hear about the collaborative process. We haven't had two co-writers come in before to talk. Uh, and any advice you might have for our students as well would be very useful. So with all of that, please join me in welcoming Ruth and Kristen. Given that little bit of background, uh, let me just sort of start off by asking both of you uh, if you can tell us uh, sort of how you first ended up at AFI and what sort of key moments were in terms of figuring out what you wanted to do. <laughs> uh, my story is shorter, so I'll go first. <laughs> I, I just uh, I went to Brown University and then took a year off and wrote some writing samples, applied to AFI, and got in. And um, you know, as far as wanting to be a writer, I, I had been reading, uh, I learned to read very young at the age of three, and my parents were both writers. They were journalists, uh, which is not a kind of writing I wanted to do. But because they were both writers, I, I was aware that like, writing was an actual job that people did. So uh, that was always in my, in my head. So then I, but I wanted to do something more along the lines of film or TV or comic books, but there was no school for that. Uh, and so I went to AFI, uh, where I met Worth. Your story is a lot more interesting than mine. It's a lot more complicated, actually. So I didn't really, um, I grew up in a little tiny town in the mountains of North Carolina, and I really had no understanding of writing um, except for journalism, and I'm dyslexic, so that was a little bit, it was very difficult to get into journalism schools if you were dyslexic 20 years ago. So I sort of um, took that, I, I was interested in human interest stories, and, and uh, kind of like studs turkle or those kind of stories and so I really became obsessed with film and television and it's also a way because I was dyslexic that I've learned storytelling but there is a, a theater in my town in Alpha Drama and so I got into theater. So my background is I started there and I, I in undergraduate school, I, we had a Lort theater on our campus, a, a Lort Four theater, so it was a little tiny theater. But all of my professors went back and forth between Yale Repertory Company. And so I realized that I wanted to go work with Lloyd Richards and August Wilson and from Yale Repertory Company. And I had a grant from um, my university and I found out where they were going to be, which was at the Goodman Theater. They were going to take um, the piano lesson from <laughs> Yale Repertory Company on their Broadway run and go to the Goodman Theater. And I got on a plane and flew to Chicago and said, you have to let me be an assistant to the directors on your next um, series of plays. <laughs> they thought I was crazy, but they'd never met this like southern person who just like got on a plane and flew to Chicago in the middle of the winter. Um, and so they let me do it, and my my plays were The Pianist and with August Wilson and Lloyd Richards, in which I was an assistant to Lloyd Richards, but also August Wilson. And then my next play was um, with Steve Tesich. It was his last play. He wrote The World According to Garp, and then he did a play called Speed of Darkness. It was the the final thing that he wrote before he passed away. And Robert Falls was directing that. He's a, a Tony Award-winning director. And um, and then my last play was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum with Frank Galati, who at the time was writing The Grapes of Wrath for Steppenwolf. So he didn't have an assistant at Steppenwolf, so I would go to Steppenwolf and do notes for him. 
Um, I was like 20. Uh, and, and so I came home. Um, I would work on plays or work, do things in, in what I wanted to do. And then I would work on a political campaign, which I was also very passionate about. And I went to work in politics. And I got a call from the film commissioner. And he said, there's this really crazy man who's doing a movie in Western North Carolina. And he can't shoot the movie in the state because he did some horrible things last time he was here. And there's an injunction filed against him. And he has to leave. So you have to go to Western North Carolina, because that's where I was from. And you have to tell him that he has to leave. So it was Michael Mann and last the Mohicans. <laughs> and I hated the film commissioner with a passion. Uh, and so I went to uh, Western North Carolina, and I was like, how can I help you stay here? <laughs> and um, they offered me a job, and that was my first movie. So Michael got me into graduate school. Michael and John Landau, who was uh, the head of 20th Century Fox and is now James Cameron's producing partner. And they got me my first development job. So, so I literally had no experience in in theater, film, and television, I just kind of took the opportunities that I had and sort of, you know, tried to learn what I wanted to do. And so did you work in development before going to film school? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> and you both met at AFI, I'm assuming? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So did you focus on writing there, or what were each of you focused on? Uh, I was a, a, a screenwriting major, uh, and Ruth... So AFI, which I think is a wonderful program, but they don't offer it anymore, and a lot of places don't offer it, but I would recommend if you have the opportunity to do something like this that you should. Um, they had a writing producing program or a writing directing program in which directors could initiate projects and they could either choose to write the projects, or writers or pro producers or directors, or they could choose to collaborate. And I was the only person at AFI who chose to collaborate because I, even though I have what I feel like is a fairly good understanding of directing and a, f a fairly good understanding of producing now. Um, and in television, everyone who's a producer is a writer. So, I mean, there's a lot of crossover. Directors are often writers as well. Um, I did not feel like my strength was writing because I was dyslexic and I really had not done a whole lot of actual writing. And Chris is very, very much a writer. <laughs> um, and so that's actually how we met because I initiated a I, I, it was kind of weird, though, because only producers and directors could initiate projects, which I think is strange. Um, but I, one of my projects, I asked Chris if he would write, so it was a cycle project, and that's how we met. Oh, wow. Yeah. So where did you each go from, from AFI? Did you jump right into writing jobs of a certain type? or We sold a pitch. Uh, within six months of graduating, we sold a pitch to Warner Brothers uh, <coughs> that was a big budget sci-fi type George of Clooney. thing and it was for yeah, it was for George Clooney around the time when he was doing Batman uh, when he was being groomed as an action star um, and you know uh, we we wrote it we got paid and it's still sitting on a shelf to this day as so often happens and uh, um, uh, while we were in graduate school because <laughs> you guys are in graduate school so this is very important um, we developed two different screenplays and full-length screenplays because short films are really great for directors, but they're not a particularly good medium for writers. I mean, they can showcase you as a writer, um, but you need to develop a full-length feature. So we developed two. Um, one of them was my 
project for our master's thesis, and one of them was Chris's. So the one that Chris, we worked on them both together, but the one that Chris did is the one that got us the agent um, for George Clooney, for the pitch for George Clooney, and it's how we, he, it was sent out as a spec and didn't sell, but then it was used to, to sell the pitch. And the other one is actually, it, it was like a Coen Brothers comedy, but it got us a manager, and so the manager then attached people to that project, and that project sort of went in a different direction, so it allowed us to do sort of something completely different. So we were very active while we were in graduate school. You made it sound like we just sat there for two years. <laughs> I didn't realize that's what I was doing. <laughs> well, they want to know how you got from graduate school to getting an agent and a manager. Oh, I sat there for two years. <laughs> no, uh, no, no I, I mean, I was, I was a, a writing major, so I was always writing, and yes. we worked on stuff together, and yeah, so I thought, anyway, um, so that's, that's what we did, and, and we worked in, we wrote screenplays, movie screenplays for a while. We, we did the first adaptation of the Arthur C. Clarke novel Rendezvous with Rama from Morgan Freeman's company. Um, and David Fincher. And David Fincher. And still, again, sitting on a shelf. Still sitting on a shelf. <laughs> and that, that's, that became a theme. We quickly realized that writing, the, the problem with writing movies, screenplays, they, is they huge. very rarely, rarely get made. Uh, and so we switched to smaller screenplays like genre film well not just genre films but smaller budget screenplays and we had a few made a movie called the breed uh movie called uh uh what was the other one paradox paradox <laughs> i did uh, yeah teenage clark. caveman for larry clark uh and um and we so we learned that smaller movies are more likely to get made but a lot of times the directors are crazy, and they they don't turn <laughs> out very badly. good. No. And they, they don't turn out very good. So uh, <laughs> after we we decided to look into television, and uh, we um, we were my my it's a weird thing. My cousin knew this guy Neil Bear, who had been on ER and was at the time was the showrunner of Law and Order SVU. And we said to him, look, he called him and he was very nice. And we said we're we're thinking about getting into television. Would you mind if we take you to breakfast and ask you some questions about it? And at the time, I don't know if IMDb existed, but if it did, it was in its infancy and we didn't know about it. So we, we had breakfast with him and we were telling him what we liked, our favorite episodes of ER, which of course turned out Every to be one ones that he had written. And I'm sure he thought episode. we had looked them up and were just brown nosing, <laughs> but he, we hit it off and he said, look, I've got a freelance episode available of SVU. Would you be interested in, in pitching for it? So we did. So we wrote, uh, we ended up writing several episodes of Law and Order SVU over the next couple of years. Uh, and um, right, Dick Wolf's favorite. Yeah, in, including one Dick Wolf says is to this day says is his day. favorite episode. And, and, the, and the last panel, the last time we were on a panel, I insulted Dick Wolf, and then literally a guy who was on his show walked up to us and said, "Did you guys write Mercy?" And I was like, "Yeah, why?" And he said, "Because Dick Wolf has his five episodes. He makes every person that ever works for him watch, and Mercy is his all-time favorite episode." I was like, "Oh my god, I just insulted him on a panel." <laughs> Not, I, he's, he's not bad. It wasn't a bad insult, but it was like... I, it was, it was like, one of those delightful insults. Yes, and then I did it like several times because I was so embarrassed that I'd like, I said he was cheap, and then I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. And then I was like, oh my God, he's really... <laughs> and I just kept saying it. Then I said it like across mediums on like a radio. And Chris was like, good God, could you please just like say this every time we go, you know, do a panel. Could you just call Dick Wolf some terrible thing? And... <laughs> 
in case anyone isn't familiar, Dick Wolf is the grand yes. figure behind all of the Law and Order series. The Law and Order series, and now he does all of the Chicago, Chicago Fire. Fire, Chicago and Mad. And he's a genius because, um, and it's really funny because he, um, he and he says this publicly, so he apparently was on Miami Vice and it was like the worst experience of his life. So he said, I'm going to create a show where, which is completely different and done in a completely different way. And so he created Law and & Order. And initially they would not put Law & Order on the air because he had done it as two half hour, no, the, uh, or, what was it? It was because at that time, one-hour shows couldn't sell in syndication. Right. So the reason that it was set up that the first half was the cops and the second half was the court was so that they could split it up into and two half hours that could be syndicated. So, so he is a genius. He's, he's like a total genius. And, and he's a brilliant writer, too, by the way. And he's really not a bad guy. He's just occasionally cheap. Um, <laughs> Just say that a few more times. Oh, we'll edit this out of the recording. <laughs> we She said it on every other venue. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. So, okay. Um, did you have any TV experience, even in film school, writing for TV, or how did you switch from writing for features to TV? Was there anything you had to do to get the skill set? <laughs> we, we, you know what? We just read a whole bunch of Law and Order scripts and. Uh, yeah, that was it, right? Yeah. I mean, basically, we were fortunate enough. Most times, people who work in television will not. You have to have um, an original piece. So you have to have, like, a pilot or something you've done that's you know, shows, like, what your voice is in a... Uh, in, a, in an original way, and television is very interesting, so if you're going to write, if you want to write a family drama, you kind of have to have a family drama, and if you want to write, but, but your family drama, and then if you want to write uh, something like Daredevil, you kind of have to have that sort of show, so you have to have a lot of different samples, but then they also want to see that you can write a show, usually, and so after we were on Law & Order, we wrote Deadwood. We, we wrote, like, we did, you know, episodes of shows to show that we could write different kinds in of different stuff. different But in someone right. else's voice. But we were really lucky that Neil read one of our screenplays, because most of the time, um, showrunners just don't have the time to read, uh, like, a, a screenplay if they're in television. And um, because it's just a, it's a, being a showrunner is an incredibly demanding job and so uh he he read our screen he read the one that we had written for Clooney and of course he had worked with Clooney and so he um you know he knew uh, we don't know if they he, he called the company but a lot of times people will call the people you've worked with and ask them you know what the experience is and stuff and so we're not really sure what he did but he hired <laughs> <laughs> so were you pretty much collaborating as writers from the get-go on most projects or yeah pretty much how do you, how does that work? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, I mean, usually the way it works is we talk about the story overall and get an idea of what we want to do. Um, and then uh, I'm a morning writer and she's a nighttime writer, so we sort of trade it off like that. Chris usually, Chris is much, like I said, he is much more of a, like, a writer than I am. So when I am talking about something, I talk about it in much more general terms. Like, this is the structure. This is how I see the structure work, and this is what I see happening with this character, and this is, you know, and this is what I want the dialogue to convey, you know, or I just, you know, whatever. And Chris is very specific. And, you know, Chris is someone who, he writes five pages a day, 
I think he could be dying and he would still be writing five pages a day. So he gets up, he writes the five pages. If we were waiting for me, we would be living in a ditch. Like, I mean, you know, because I, I like the mood has to strike me. Um, but no, I have to, I'm much more, I'm much more of kind of like a director or producerial kind of writer, um, and so he generally does the first draft. We, I mean, we're, we're, we sit down and go over things very specifically, so we know what the story is, what the what the characters are doing, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then he writes the first draft, and then he leaves it for me, and then I write it, I rewrite it, or if I if I don't know how it should be rewritten, but I know that something doesn't work about it, or I know the general direction that it should take, you know, I'll just like write a page of notes and then we'll talk about it. And and then a lot of times at that point we work together. So we will go over the scenes and go through the scenes and 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 sort of rewrite things together. I can I and I really struggle with like getting the stuff on the page initially. So he's he's very kind in that he usually just puts it down and it's just it's just more my nature you know i sort of have an old school uh you know uh, i read about a lot of the guys who who did comic books in the old days in the golden age and they were they, they came in they punched a clock and they had to turn out x amount by the end of the day and by god they did it and that, so you that's sort of your have job. A, a working <coughs> set hours that you kind of write yeah i get up in the morning and i i write five pages sometimes i'll write more but at least five pages and a screenplay. It's, it's easier to write more pages of comic book or more, don't you think? I usually do about five pages of comic book, too. Sometimes Two. seven. So how do, um, how do comics fit in here? Like, when did you start writing comics? It, it I started writing comics not long after we began doing uh, Law & Order SVU. Um, I got to know a guy named Jimmy Palmiotti at a convention. Uh, do you know Jimmy? Yeah. He's, a, he's, he's a great guy, and he knows everybody. Uh, and... Um, he and I had had a similar experience with a producer who had a fondness for the uh, the uh, cocaine. So we, uh, anyway, we talked, and, and I, I let him know I was going to be in New York. We were going to be in New York for a, a shooting of one of our Law & Order episodes, and he said, well, let me see if I can get you. He knew I wanted to write comics. He said, let me see if I can get you a meeting with Dan Didio at DC Comics. Uh, so he was kind enough to set up a lunch, and I uh, pitched a project that became a, a dead shot miniseries, which is my first job in comics. Uh, and then from there, I parlayed that into some work at Marvel, a Union Jack miniseries. And then I got to do a thing uh, for Civil War, the, uh, the, the event, which was a big, my sort of my big breakthrough in comics. And, you know, I've been working in comics uh, ever since, so about 10 years now. Wow. So Ruth, have you, have you done much prior to Lion Aurora in comics? No, that's okay. the first, um, the first thing that um, I've ever done in comics, and it was really fascinating to me because it was a screenplay. So we've done three graphic novels; they've all been screenplays, and then we adapted them, or he adapted them to uh, graphic novels. And so my, first of all, I was just kind of intimidated by it because I real I wasn't quite sure I understood it, and then I approached it as if um, you were doing a shot list for a movie, which is a mistake. <laughs> Because graphic novels have to tell a story in graphic form, and and so you're like when you're doing a shot list for a movie, you know you're talking about oh this is a medium shot and a close up. You're not talking about oh I have to convey this emotion or I have to convey this action over like a series of pictures, and so it was really a learning process for me because I would say to Chris oh I see you know X shot 
whatever here. And he would say, but that's not going, that doesn't convey the story that's, that doesn't convey the scene. Yeah, and so to, to learn the, you know, sort of the difference between, it was, and it was actually the opposite of what most people do. So most people read a graphic novel and they're like, oh, I see this as a movie. And for us, we were doing it in the exact opposite direction. But it's still the same kind of stuff. Like you realize that graphic novels really tell a story um, much like a movie, but you know, on the page. Um, they're probably the, I think the closest thing to movie. People will often read novels and they'll say, oh, I see this as a movie, but it's, it's actually very difficult to adapt a novel into a movie. We've done it. Um, um, because... Um, they can be very internal. They can be very internal, and, you're, and a movie is very cinematic. So you have to see... Chris's dad is so funny because he is a journalist, and he writes nonfiction books. And so you work with him, and he says to you, this is the way the scene happened. I came into a restaurant... I sat down and we talked about a train robbery <laughs> or whatever. And you're like, okay, but Nick, if it's a movie, you have to see the train robbery. You can't, you, we can't see you, every scene can't be you walking into a room and sitting down and discussing the most awesome thing that just happened that we haven't seen. You can do that maybe once or twice, but you can't, that's not a movie, it's not cinematic. And so it was, it's very interesting in the, in, the same way of like graphic novels and movies. They, you know, I had to sort of like think about it in terms of, oh no, this is a story. You have to tell a story. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a literary thing. Like you have to be able to tell the story, not this is a shot list. Does that make any sense, guys? Uh, anyway, it's, it's kind of hard to explain it backwards, but yeah. it was a really interesting process for me. Interesting. So, Chris, how did you originally fig like, figure out the process of telling comics? Had you read other scripts or just You know, up? I had been reading comics since about 1974, so <laughs> I think I just, through osmosis, I had absorbed the way it, it works. And I read, there was a book at the time called uh, The DC Comics Guide to Writing Comics by, I think it was by uh, Denny O'Neill. And I, I use that to get some of the points of the formatting across. And now there's other books. Ben, Brian Bendis has put out a book. Um, and they, they tell you the format. But really, for me, it wasn't a huge... Uh, I already knew about composing it in terms of the page as a unit, as opposed to the, in, in TV and movies, the, the unit of storytelling is the scene, which could be 30 seconds long or it could be two minutes long. Uh, in comics, it's a page. So you want to try to tell almost a little story within a page and have a little moment of suspense at the end of the page so people will turn the page. Um, but uh, there were some things I had to adjust to be coming from a, a, a film and TV writing background. Like I remember one of the first things I did was a Batman story and he was fighting Clayface on the, the roof of Arkham Asylum. And, uh, I think I wrote a panel where it said, Batman picks up a gargoyle and tears a gargoyle off the roof and throws it at Clayface. And my editor said, no, one panel, he pulls the gargoyle off the roof Two second panel, he throws it. He can't do two motions in one in one panel. Um, so you you do have to remember. And the other thing that I, I believe I overwrote dialogue, which is something that a lot of screenwriters do, because a lot of times, especially in television, you have to get a lot across through the dialogue because you don't have the budget. Um, it's funny because in Daredevil, sometimes I mean we had a big budget for Daredevil, but we would joke about you know, if our budget was running low, that we'd have to do things like, I don't know if you've seen Wet Hot American Summer, the movie, 
but there's a part where he's, th there's a character who's going to save some kids from a raft from going over the falls, and the camera stays on this other guy who's like, oh my God, you're doing it. You're really doing it. Because <laughs> they didn't have the budget to, yeah. to do the thing. And, yeah, and, show it. Yeah. and so we would joke about that, be like, oh, wow, Daredevil, you're doing it. You're really doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and in comics, you don't have to worry about that. You can do whatever. So that, that's actually really fun. And the flip side is uh, a lot of times when, when screenwriters go to do comics, they're so excited by the fact that they don't have a budget that they, they go too big in their storytelling and forget about the character. Um, so anyway... Well, I'm kind of curious. You've obviously worked for a lot of big IP for comics, yeah. right? And so how much do you have creative latitude with, you know, the Marvel, the DC, or even Buffy? Like, how much are people chiming in about what you have to bring in in terms of backstory, story world? Well, the, Buffy is a unique case because the way we do those is we're actually continuing the storyline from the TV show and working directly with Joss. So what happened was Buffy ran seven seasons and then Joss uh, decided to do season eight, which continued the story with him and a lot of the writers from the show, but he wrote most of them. Then with season nine, he wrote the first issue and this guy, Andrew Chambliss, who's a TV writer, uh, wrote the rest of it while I was writing Angel and Faith. And now I'm writing season 10. But before each season, we have a summit, which is a lot like a writer's room and Joss is there and, uh, couple of writers from the show, like Jane Espenson, always shows up. and, and um, he, Throughout the whole process, he reads everything. Yeah, he, he reads all, yeah. all of the scripts. And, and he's involved. So he's still very involved in it because it's, you know, that's his baby. <laughs> but the good thing about it is, so you have, you figured out the spine of the story in the summit, and then Joss is weighing in along the way when he feels it's necessary. So you've got, it's, it's, it's like having a showrunner. And the network itself, like Fox, even though they actually own it, Every now and then they'll be like, can we not say, you know, Jesus here? You know, I don't know if, I, if, you, if you curse or something, you know, uh, th that's the only thing. Or if they feel something is like one time we, we wanted to use a song lyric that they were worried about getting sued over. It's just little stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Um, in terms of other IP, it, you know, it all varies uh, depending on what you're doing. Um, if you're writing, you know, if you're the interesting thing about comics, when, when you're writing a TV show, uh, as I've said before, we, when you when you are going to write an episode of Law and Order SVU, they don't. Your job is to sound. Your job is not to write a, an episode of Law and Order SVU that has a quirky Coen Brothers vibe to it. It's to write an episode of Law and Order SVU that feels like an episode of Law, Order, Law and Order SVU. In comics, it's a little bit different. Spider-Man has to sound and act like Spider-Man, but nobody expects Brian Bendis' Spider-Man to talk exactly like. Dan Slott's Spider-Man, just as nobody expects John Romita Jr.'s Spider-Man, he's the artist, to, to look like, uh, you know, uh, Giuseppe Camicoli's Spider-Man. So there's a little bit more leeway there, um, as long as certain things are stuck to. Um, as far as, you know, the, 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 the company telling you what to do, it all depends on, you know, obviously the bigger the character, you have to get certain storylines approved. Um, and there's some degree of fun. I wrote a book called The Avengers, The Initiative, and then which turned into Avengers Academy. And those dealt with a lot of the sort of the, the you know, fringe characters of the Marvel Universe. And that was a lot of fun because people didn't really care what you did. And you could do a lot of fun stuff. Like I did an entire story from the point of view of a zealous supervillain. Uh, and, you know, so that was fun. So it, it always varies. And then you do things like custom projects like I did. Uh, I've done custom projects where it's like, you're, it's for um, it's for like I did a, a iron a poster type of thing where 
it's for a company that makes uh, not cochlear implants, but things that help kids with with hearing damage here. And it was about how Iron Man comes in, and you know, some some kids are making fun of a kid who has one of these. And Iron Man comes in, and he's like, "Hey, that's just technology, like my armor, and it's just a way of helping." And let me explain. And the kids all, you know, get along at the end. And you know, so th those can sometimes be very specific because they want the product portrayed a certain way. Mm -hmm. But it really is a case by case basis. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious because as you're talking about comics, you both sort of refer to it in some ways being like film, in some ways being like TV. I mean, do you, do you feel like uh, there's convergence in certain ways with a specific medium at this point more, or is comics sort of its own beast that you see it as? There's, so, there's so much crossover. There's I, a lot of crossover. I think they are closest to any other. So graphic novels are, I think, I, I, and always have been much closer to movies and like structurally and how yeah. characters are developed. I mean, not all graphic novels. Some graphic novels are, I mean, like Persepolis was done as a series and then put together as a graphic novel and then mm -hmm. as a movie. Um, and so that, you know, that, that sort of thing is a little bit different. Uh, but, uh, and then, Comics are really kind of more like television, I think. Um, and it but, but the thing to, to remember is, and, and I think Ruth is right, that, that they're closer than other media, but it's its own thing. I mean, one of the things that, that when, when we write together, Ruth will often tell me you're being too comic booky, and usually what she means by that is your, your, your dialogue is a little too on the nose. You're saying things in the dialogue that the actors will be able to convey in their or facial. We, or we're going to see, like we're yeah. going to be shooting it, and it's going to, and it's 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 going to be too much because you're going to hear it, you're going to see it. In comics, gonna... even the most talented artist is still working with a two-dimensional image and cannot convey, and it, you know, it, you can't have a character say one thing and mean another, and the audience necessarily get it mm -hmm. unless you're augmenting it somehow. Whereas in TV, uh, a good actor can easily, I mean, if they're good, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, <laughs> but any, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio, for example, can say, uh, you know, I'm fine, and you realize he's getting ready to rip someone's head off, you know, and so uh, that's the biggest difference. But I would say that comics and uh, TV and, and movies are the closest, much more so than, than prose writing, let's say, which I think... If you, go, if you go from being a novelist to being a screenwriter, there's a lot you have to unlearn before you relearn what you're doing in the other one. Do you think, uh, and we're going to get jump into Daredevil more in more detail shortly, but do you think that in terms of dealing with this big comic book IP, uh, that there are fewer people just inherently involved with the comic books or less interference, or is it still pretty evenly <laughs> uh, distributed? You know, that's... it. it, it, it it can vary. Uh, it, I'm sure that if you're doing a, you know, $200 million Avengers movie, there's probably a lot of people involved. Um, Although the, the, oh, I was going to say that, that, like, should I say? The fascinating thing about that is, is there were probably less people involved in the first Avengers movie than in the second. Because the first Avengers movie made so much money that all of a sudden everybody was like, wow, this made a lot of money. And so now there needs to be sort of like more, we need to add more characters and expand our brand more. So there's probably like less interference, I would say, like on like when you're starting out. So for us on Daredevil, I mean, Drew Goddard was this guy who 
you know, I mean, he's written all kinds of stuff for for all kinds of people, from Brad Pitt to you know to Doss, and so he, he had a, a like a very definitive vision, and he was not going to do the show unless that's what we did, and and so it it really just depends on sort of who you are and how much. Um, you know, influence that you can have over the process. I mean, the, you know, um, Joss had not done movies when he was doing The Avengers. Not at that scale. Not at that scale. The, that level of movie. Um, and, but remarkably, they let him make this incredibly personable, personal movie. Um, and, but, but like I said, the, and then it made so much money that everybody was like, Wow, we never thought these characters would make this kind of money, and so it became a whole different situation. Yeah. Well, how did you both get involved with Daredevil, and what was what was that process like? Oh gosh, I think <laughs> around the time when they decided, uh, when they first announced they were going to do uh, uh, live action Marvel TV, we expressed to uh, our manager that. We were interested, and uh, he knows um, Megan Bradner, who's a terrific executive at Marvel, and I believe she's the one who got us our stuff in front of Drew. Uh, and so we we went in and had a meeting with Drew. And well, Drew, Drew's best friend is Brian K. Vaughn, and Brian K. Vaughn was doing Under the Dome with Neil Bear, our showrunner from SVU, and so he, you know, he basically read our stuff and then called Brian K. Vaughn and said, do you know them? And, and he said, I don't, but, well, I mean, he knows us personally, but he never worked with us. But he said, Neil, you know, I'll ask Neil. And Neil said they were the Wolf's favorite of <laughs> So we, <laughs> so, yeah. we, we got a meeting with Drew and we went in and... Um, and his favorite movie was Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> which Ruth had worked on. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> one, of his, one of his favorite movies. So that, that was a big thing. And, and uh, he liked the, I told him about how because he really, he told us he really wanted to do Daredevil as a Daredevil as a crime show, and I told him about, about how my father had been, in a reporter for the New York Times in the '70s, covering the mafia and uh, some of the things that he used to do and some of the experiences he had. So, he was very interested in that and thought it would be a good fit. And so, and we just had really great chemistry, and uh, he hired us. So, were you involved from sort of the get-go of Daredevil? Or? Yeah, he had Drew had already written the pilot, which I believe was done as sort of proof of concept and you know selling it to. Netflix, um, but we we were among the first writers hired. Uh, Joe Pekaski had already been hired, um, but I think we were around. Marco Ramirez was the current showrunner, and, and us were hired around the same, same time. Same time, yeah. So how big was the? It was a five-person writing staff, or it was. Let's see. When when Drew was running the show, it was one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, six, right? Six, six. And then when Drew left and Stephen uh, and Doug Petrie came in, it, it went up to seven. So what? Um, how was that transition? Did the vision change much as it went from Drew to well, Stephen? Well, uh, there were uh, there were things that there were sort of budgetary concerns and things that were that they changed as far as the story went in the last few episodes of the show. It, it was really more their concerns about. It wasn't Stephen. He bought into. It wasn't Stephen. We had already yeah. worked out the spine of the um, story, and, and Stephen was on board with that. So there were things. There were some things that were that definitely changed. But as far as who the characters were, where they were going, and what was going to happen, um, 
especially like up through episode nine, it, it really was pretty much exactly the way Drew had always um, had always thought that it was going to be. And that was your episode. That was that, episode. <laughs> so was there a writer's room? Or when you say that was your episode, like how much were you involved with that in comparison to other episodes? Oh, we were the, there. The, 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 writers, the writer's room, basically the way it worked, first we all collectively broke the, the, the um, season. So it was like, you know, act one is episodes one through three. I don't know if it was exactly, you know, act two is episodes four through, you know, nine. And then act three is episodes 10 through 13. And uh, here's what happens roughly in each episode, like in a very broad sense in each episode. Um, and we were all, you know, riffing on that, all coming up with stuff like that. And then we, we collectively broke each episode together, meaning we'd sit in a room and say, okay, so now we're doing episode four. We know that it needs to, this needs to happen in the episode. Daredevil has to fight this guy, and it ends up here. How do we get from point A to point B? And we'd all just talk about it and, you know, okay, scene one, let's do this. And, you know, uh, not, and then, well, we know it needs to end here. How do we get from here to here? So it was a very collaborative effort. And then once you have the, the, the beat sheet, the, the outline, then whoever's writing that episode takes it, goes home, and actually writes the scenes and figures out, you know, how it's going to be spoken and done and you know if that makes any sense mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what was um you you went off and did the ninth one but you had a pretty heavy voice in terms of across the board yeah i mean there's there's stuff in every in every episode like ruth came up uh there's a character mrs cardenas who spoiler alert dies in our episode but uh, they were asked to watch the episode yeah okay so. <laughs> um but that whole storyline where Nelson and murdoch are representing her She's a holdout in a rent-controlled building that Wilson Fisk is trying to get all the tenants out of so he can knock it down and build luxury condos. That was a story that Ruth found in the New York Times uh, that actually happened in New York. Um, Which is hilarious because I was the only non-comic book person in the room. And so everybody is coming in the room and pitching their stories. And they're all these, like, incredible stories. Of, you know, and, and Drew gets to me and I'm like... I have this really fascinating case of rent control. <laughs> but I've got a video. I want to show you this video from the like and I was like, "Oh my god. He is going to think I'm such a moron." And he was like, "I love that story." And it's, you know, and we needed a legal case. And so And then for um, example, uh, you know, the fact that Daredevil Kingpin frames Daredevil as uh, uh, you know, one of the things we struggle with is how do you get to the name Daredevil? Cuz in the comics uh, he, the idea was he was a little kid and his father was a boxer, but he wanted his son to study, not to fight. So he wasn't allowed to play with the other kids, so they mockingly called him Daredevil, and that didn't work for any of us. Uh, so we were like, how do we get the name Daredevil? And we came up with the idea that Kingpin frames Matt as being responsible for some explosions, and I suggested, what if the papers on Kingpin's payroll call him the devil of Hell's Kitchen, and then he parlays that into Daredevil down the line. So, you know, and, and everybody had stuff like that, that that they contributed. So there's, you know, it, it's a very collaborative medium, and that, but then there does come a time when when each episode is down to one writer who, who writes it, and then the showrunner usually does a polish on every episode so they all have a consistent voice and tone. So were you on set when they were shooting your episode? Yes. Um, we were every every writer covered their own covered set for their own episode, and then sometimes when 
the, that writer couldn't be there, a different writer would, so we actually covered episode 11 also. Okay. So what was the whole length of your time working on the first season, and also just how long was the shoot for the like your episode in particular? We joined the show in mid-February, and the writer's room continued on until mid-December, which is insanely long yeah, time. Yeah, that never happens on a 13-episode. Never on a 13-episode show. You go for usually about four or five months. And on, like, for instance, on 63, which is the new... The Stephen 63, is that what it's called? I think it's called 1132, yeah, 1122, 63. 11, 20, what is it? 1122, 63. It's about the Kennedy It's about the Kennedy assassination, which is the Steve, new Stephen King show, which is... Um, J.J. Abrams' company, so we had friends who worked on that, and they literally came into the room um, for 10 weeks. For 10 weeks. 10 weeks. They broke story for 10 weeks, then everyone went off and wrote a Then everyone went off and wrote their episode, and, 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 then, and that was the end. And then they shot their episode, and that was it. And I was like, oh, my God. So we were actually on Daredevil for 14 months because we didn't finish our stuff until uh, April. <laughs> and then um, what? basically to, sh to, to shoot a given episode was usually about... Uh, ten days, I want to say. Yeah. Oh, that's so you, but we would go <laughs> to New York for um, like before, and it, yeah, it was about ten, twelve days. I mean, like I think that. they were eight or nine day shoots, but it, there, then there were you were th prep. things around yeah. them. Yeah. And were you involved in the post process as yes. well? Yes. Yes, uh, we were. I mean, by the time it was funny because by the time, uh, uh, you know, there were there were so few people on the staff. It was a pretty small staff that everyone was involved in in post and. Um, so we were in the editing room with just us and the editors for episodes 9 and 11, and then uh, what, what else did we do? I can't remember. <laughs> it, it, it was all blurred. It, it, yeah, it, it all blurs yeah, together. It all blurs together. But well, anyway, I mean, because, it was... Because, like, for, for instance, we were sent off to write um, the treatment for our episode, and we got this, you know, like, a frantic... We were know, losing people, so Joe Pekaski had his pilot picked up, and he and, left. And people were, and so we get these, fr we, we get these frantic emails from Stephen, and he'd say they can't break an episode, so you have to come back. So we were, so we were literally like writing for three days. Then we'd come back in the room, it's been three days breaking an episode, and then leave and go write for three more days, and then do like five days of. It, like in an editing room, so it was. It was all hands quite on Quite different than m how most television shows work, because you yeah. just had to sort of do, be able to do everything that they needed for you to do. Now, do you think that the difference in process had to do at all with like the the platform that it was for, like the different making for Netflix or doing for Marvel, or was it like why do you think it was a different process for this? Well, one reason is just simply because it was a new show. Yeah. So, uh, like on Law and Order SVU, it was so established, and you literally it was like would, a well-oiled machine. It's just like a machine. So you, you know, they would, those people would just go to a block in New York and say, "We need six sets, and you know, we need a pharmacy, we need a bodega, we need this. We're going to take over this block, and here's your every one of those, and this is how you know." So. So on this, we were literally creating everything, and we had to find everything. So we had to find every location. We had to find, you know, um, just like we had to find everybody that was involved in the process. And so it was just completely so you're, and you're casting, different. You're casting different roles. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's everything's from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. So did you deal much with Netflix? Uh, Netflix. I mean, there were Netflix executives who, who who were around, but it was very much Marvel was the production company, and Netflix was sort of the distributor, if you yeah. will. Yeah. So I'm just curious because I know in like the typical broadcast model, the network and the studio will both 
chime in plenty. Well, they I mean, did. They did give notes, but and Ruth has a good story about that. But um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it was it was more Marvel's show uh, and and Netflix just had some more global uh, notes, but. Well, so when we got to our episode, I, in my mind, um, I had always seen the structure of our show was very specifically structured, and I had always seen our episode as structured like out of gas. Have you guys seen Firefly? If you haven't seen Firefly, you should watch it. It's Joss Whedon's show, and it's brilliant just because it really sort of predated a lot of short shows and he essentially sort of did a movie in his in this one particular uh, season of Firefly and so he had structured the season in a very specific way and so there's this episode out of gas um, which is the low point in his season and the low point for his character and so in my mind in our season I had seen our episode as structured like out of gas. And I felt really strongly about this because I felt like our audience was gonna be pretty smart. They were gonna have figured out a lot of things. They were gonna have, they were gonna suspect a lot of things like stuff with Mrs. Cardenas and all of this stuff by the time they got to our episode. Um, and that if we treated them as a, you know, if we were sort of like, oh, we're gonna do this in a very traditional way, we're gonna go from A to B to C to D, that it would just be kind of I don't know, it was kind of, kind of be insulting and also just like boring. And so I, so, and I felt really strongly that we should set it up as if we were telling a certain story and then get to the end of the episode and do the things that we wanted people to like be like, oh, it was great to watch people tweet this episode because they were like, oh, oh shit. You know, like, <laughs> um, so that was like the like the most fun part. And but but I I just felt like because I knew the kinds of people who were going to be watching this series, I felt like, oh they'll you know they'll get this and they'll fall into. So apparently, uh, the executive at Netflix, who we love by the way, he's a great guy, but um, hated this, and he he was incredibly confused by it. Which on paper, if you if you just don't, in, in outline form, in outline form, if you if you really don't have a script and you really have never you don't really know the series of Firefly, you probably would look at it and be like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Um, but in my mind, it made perfect sense. Um, and he, so it came back, Stephen was actually gone, and it came back that like, there was no way in hell they were gonna let us do this episode of television like, like we wanted to structure it. And I had no earthly idea how to do it any other way, because it, for the entire series, this was what, in my mind, as to how we were gonna do it. And Chris was like, oh, we'll figure it out. And I was like, I don't know how you're gonna figure this out, because I have no idea. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me any other way. And so Stephen came back and, um, and was basically like, I love Out of Gas, and I think this is perfect, and you should go write it the way you want to write it, and just do it the way you want to do it. And then if it sucks, you know, we'll redo it. But basically, which was pretty brave, considering we were really, really under the gun, and it was a very expensive production, and he was taking like a huge risk. It was funny, because I, I said to Chris, I said, I, I can't decide if St Stephen did Sp the Spartacus, the show Spartacus, and I was like, I felt like Stephen was the guy who, like, I was like, standing alone in a field with the sword, and Stephen like rides up beside me on a horse, and he's like, let's go, and we're charging like 400 people, and I'm like, I'm not quite sure if we're gonna die doing this, <laughs> or, you know, like, or if we're gonna be successful, but then it was like one of the most successful episodes, and people really loved it, and, um, and it was 
you know, it was nominated for the most Emmys, and um, and so, but but anyway, th that would have never happened if we had not had a showrunner who understood. But the hilarious part is, so I told the story. I I tell stories I should never tell. So I told this at a Writers Guild. Uh, thing and the Netflix executive was sitting in the audience, <laughs> and so. We, but I didn't know it was him. All I knew was that we had gotten this go jump in the lake. You're not doing this series. You're not doing the show this way. This makes no sense. And he came up to me and he was like, "I just want you to know that was my thing, and um, I'm the person who said to Netflix, this is terrible. I like this doesn't make any sense to me.'" And he was like, "I was wrong, and it's a brilliant episode. And thank you so much for like." And I was like, well, thanks, Stephen, because, you know, he could have just as easily said to me, uh, I am not fighting this battle. Um, I don't care about your stupid structure. <laughs> you know, but I feel like the episode would not have been as interesting as it was if we didn't start it with what people thought was going to be the battle of the episode. Um, because it was always supposed to be about the meeting with Fisk. It was always supposed to be about, you know, Fisk in the end. It was always, you know, and it was also supposed to be about Foggy because that was supposed to be the like his big emotional low point that this person who trusted him um, was betrayed. And we could have done that linear linearly, um, but I just don't think it would have had the same impact. Okay. Yeah. So, so and just so they know, I don't know if you've said Stephen's last name. It's Stephen Denight, yeah. who was the showrunner, yes. who was our showrunner yes. after Drew Goddard left. Yes. Yeah. So um, Drew, Drew, pretty much everything was done with Drew through episode six, and then the season was broken down, and Stephen came in around episode six, and so he did the rest of the show, and it was great because Stephen was kind of doing Marvel a favor because Drew was going off to do a movie, which then didn't happen, and he got to do what he wanted to do. <laughs> Speaking of Marvel, so you said Marvel was more involved in the yes. process. Um, how were they involved and uh, tied to that? To what extent either you as writers or due to Marvel, did you feel like you needed to weave in previous you know, elements of Daredevil stories from the past? Well, the, the interesting thing is probably the biggest way Marvel was involved is their huge level of secrecy. Um, you sign these ironclad NDAs. You can't, I mean, we were on the show for 14 months during which we could not talk about being on the show. Uh, we still can't talk about anything else. Anything so that you haven't already seen, that you haven't we already can't seen. talk about. Um, can't discuss anything I mean, in the you future sign, And it's not just Marvel. It's becoming this way throughout the industry. Yeah. I was saying earlier, we had a friend who, who was up for a show that had a very, the pilot was shrouded in secrecy, so they sent it to him to read. But he had to sign a contract saying that if it gets out, if, if it leaks because of him, he owes them a million dollars. So, so uh, that's, I mean, how, and, that's and, how the level of secrecy in the industry. pretty much that now. level yeah. of, I mean, they're, you know, they, they would not hesitate. If something leaked and they thought it was you, they would not hesitate to sue you. They sue everybody. But in terms of... <laughs> Is that Marvel or Disney or all of the above? It's all of the above. It's all, all of the above. above. I mean, yeah, yeah. Mar Marvel is the, the best at it. And, you know, it's because there's so much at stake with piracy. You know, Marvel has a... They, they tell you when you first start working for them, it's like they tell you the story of how the Wolverine movie leaked early online and it cost them X million dollars and this is why we're like this. Um, but you, you, you asked about, you know, in terms of, like, putting things from the, the comics and things like that in, it was really left up to us. I mean, the idea being, you know, if, if it was possible to use someone, like, for example, the priest, Father Lantham, uh, 
we were going to have a priest, and then there was a question of, is there a Marvel Universe priest we can use? And Father Lantham had been in a, a series called Runaways, so that was a name that came up. Um, but it wasn't like, you must use this. We could have just named him Father. I think in Drew's pilot, he had a different name, uh, an Irish name. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's not really, that. it's more like fun Easter eggs for the fans. And then there was stuff that we did. Uh, Steven is a big Iron Fist fan, and so... Um, you know, one of the things uh, that that we did, I think I actually might have suggested this, is that on the heroin that Madame Guy was selling, there was a symbol that called the Steel Serpent, which was of an Iron Fist villain's symbol. Uh, and we weren't doing that. We were doing that as like, here it is. If anybody who's doing a future Iron Fist show wants to pick it up, they can. If they, you know, part of the part of the reason you don't want to do anything um, that is establishing something from a future show is, it's it's a nasty thing to do to a future showrunner because what if they want to do something different, different you know yeah. so it's more like you try to pepper in little easter eggs and things that people can pick up if they want to or just ignore it's fun little stuff for the for the hardcore fans but it also doesn't get in the way of the storytelling marvel is a very unique beast in the sense uh, that television is a showrunner and creator medium so it is completely writer driven so all producers are um writers and creators are writers and so it was very different in the sense that Marvel, because it's Marvel's property. So, um, so it, it, it was a very interesting dance between creator Drew Goddard, showrunner Stephen Denight, and Marvel. <laughs> it was very fascinating to watch as, pers as a person who was like sitting in the room. Were the executives in there pretty regularly? They, they came in every week. Mm -hmm. um, and they were actually, you know, Marvel has some really good executives, Mar uh, Megan Bridner and uh, Kareem, uh, what is Kareem's last name? Zreek. Zreek. I think is how it's pronounced. Um, and so they have some really wonderful executives, um, but th their job is to protect and serve Marvel. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> seriously, um, so so you know, so and and you as a writer are, you know, your job is to protect and serve the creator and showrunner. <laughs> So it was a very interesting dance, and I think that that's that was something you know. It, it's not that it wasn't that way on Law and Order SVU um, or Numbers because those were shows um, clear, that were clearly defined in the same way that that Daredevil was defined as the, you know the characters were defined. The show what the show was going to be was defined. It's just that um, it's very different working for Dick Wolf right. than it is working for. Marvel. Which well, yeah, and it's interesting to think about. I mean, you know, Law and Order is such a franchise that yeah. is so boilerplate, and in some ways, I'm sure you had much less freedom with that, right, structurally and in terms of the story. But 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 then on the flip side of that, you walked in. So the way it worked in Law and Order SVU is they gave you two uh, times a year they would give you a black book full of actual cases. So you get like 150 to 175 actual cases. They, so you get the newspaper articles. And you would, they'd say, pick out your favorite cases, which is kind of gruesome, because um, they were all gruesome. And we were the new writers, so we had to, they always made us do children, which is lovely. Um, and so, so all the dead babies, we I was like, no one else wanted to do dead babies. 
Uh, not that we wanted to. But we were the dead baby specialists. Yeah, exactly. We were, <laughs> we were the pros at it. Um, dead baby. <laughs> Over here. Um, I got it. But, but you went in and you essentially, you picked out the cases that you thought were interesting. So yeah, I, you know, The Law and Order shows how to rip from the ha right, headlines right. mandate. And, and you went in and you said, and you pitched like five or six ideas and you were like, this is what I would do for this episode of television. So in some ways, um, you had a lot more freedom because you got to, you know, you got to decide like which characters do I want to focus on? Do do I want to f uh, focus on Munch? Was that one of the characters? I can't even yeah. remember. Yeah, or do you want to focus? Because we always did sort of the secondary characters. We like liked we, we that. got to focus on on Richard Belzer's character and Ice T's character and yeah. You know. So so they would let you do that kind of stuff. It was like which character do you like and which story do you like? Um, and so in some ways there was actually more freedom on that show. It sounds a little strange because it was such in a different franchise. in different yeah, ways. In different ways. Yeah. yeah. It's just interesting to think as as franchises that yeah. you know companies feel very strong possession over as IP, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and here's my dirty confession is I have watched every episode of every Law and Order. <laughs> yes, terrifying, and you can add that up. It's been over over twenty years or whatever it's been. So, but the thing, but they're, they're kind of addictive. Like yeah. you, like, and especially if you're like homesick and you're watching one of these marathons and you're like, you just watch like fourteen of them in a row, yeah. and then you're like, oh my or god, if you're I just supposed to be writing. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I remember <laughs> when when we were um, in between jobs early in our in our career. Uh, I would, you know, I would usually get my writing done early, uh, and then I would spend the rest of the day watching Law and Order reruns on USA Network, and you would see every actor from like The oh, yeah. Sopranos, you know. Any, oh my God! So any, our, 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 seriously, we had Viola Davis on one of our episodes. We had she was like her, one of her first television um, appearances ever. Um, we like to Elizabeth say that Mitchell. we are the reason why she got an Academy Award. Um, <laughs> we had. Michael Emerson, who then from our episode got lost. Um, we had Elizabeth Mitchell, who from our episode got lost. So, I mean, it was like a, like you had the best secondary actors ever. I mean, you would just like salivate and as to who was going to be in your episode because everybody was in New York. We had Judd Hirsch in, in Judd one of our Hirsh episodes and, our, and I was a huge yeah, taxi yeah. fan <laughs> growing up. And so, I mean, it was just like amazing. We were like, oh my God, who who did we get to, you know, that was that was also like incredibly fun because like, you know, everybody wanted to do those shows and people literally, their careers were would be, you know, nobody would, everybody would have forgotten who they were and then they get, like Judd, H Judd Hirsch went, then went on to do numbers and I was like, how do people forget who Judd was he was like such a brilliant actor but he just hadn't been on something for a while and so it was really amazing to sort of watch that sort of that that, that was a lot of fun yeah um, yeah on that show no that's great uh with just back to I'd, I'd talk about law and order forever if i could but back, <laughs> but back to daredevil um so it sounds like the marvel people were pretty hands-on uh netflix people did they come in at all or were they yeah they did i mean they netflix is a very um, creator-driven network. And so if they buy something, it's just that Marvel was there. It, it's different. Most of their creators are people like David Fincher and, you know, like, so, but in this particular case, it was Marvel was their creator um, and Drew. But Marvel was first because they right. were doing a whole series of things with them. Um, and so they did come in actually um, a number of times, but they were much more uh, focused on sort of fitting what Marvel was doing into their brand. So for instance, Netflix is a, Marvel is a brand that is kind of 
I don't want to say softer, but there's not a lot of sex. There's not a huge amount of violence. Like our show was like a massive amount of violence for right, Marvel. Right. I mean, we were very different from um, from a lot of characters. Were much darker. They were never. There was never. There were never like creative notes from Netflix that were like, um, you can't cuss or you can't have a sex scene or you can't do whatever. It was much more like, how do we make sure this fits into the, you know, the Netflix universe and the Netflix brand. So because, I mean, Daredevil was such a defining show for Marvel on Netflix, right? Um, do you feel like, did you feel like you were sort of defining the terrain for what was incoming with the, the many series that are now going to come? Or were, I don't even know if you can talk about that if it, you can't. It, I mean, <laughs> in, in, a, in a very general sense, there was, it was probably more a question of will, I mean, because Jessica Jones was already being worked on. So it was probably more of a question of will the audience accept this level of violence and intensity <laughs> in a Marvel-branded product? And they did. Had they not, probably season two would have been toned down, <laughs> you know. But that that was the only real, um, you know, I mean, because, you know, Daredevil is not Jessica Jones, is not Luke Cage. You know, those are all going to have their own identity, even right. though they'll all be sort of set in the same world. Uh, but... It, it, so it really more in terms of setting the tone, it was the big question was nothing Marvel has done to date has, has you know, except yeah. for Blade ages ago, right. has been this violent. And there was a little bit of a question of whether the audience would accept that or not. Well, and then in terms of Disney, I mean, you know, considering Disney sort of gotten out of doing darker movies, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, did they come in at all or factor in at all to the process? Not really. I mean, you know, ABC still does it's not that it's terribly violent but their blind spot is their show right you know i've never seen it but i think it's violent yeah um, they have um gosh technically it was touchstone television yeah. so yeah. i think touchstone television it, and disney by the way is much more clearly much more actively involved in agent carter right right, right. agents of shield, agents of shield that, yeah. and that kind of stuff and i think that you know like they are kind of like netflix was sort of for us what ABC is for right, those yeah. Right, right. I was just curious if they, you know, because there was, I know right now, like, there's a lot of controversy about ABC just airing Wicked City, which is really violent, um, apparently serial killer show. And, and really being interesting. about a Disney show. And it's just interesting that, you know, it's, it, well, it well, it's interesting because that. I know that they, I know they would like to try to sort of push their brand in a little, you know, they used to have touchstone films and then they stopped doing that. And they, so, but I think they, I think th I don't think they're really against it. I think they're just trying to figure out how to how to move. A, you know, it's a constantly evolving. It's, it is everything <laughs> in this in industry is constantly evolving. I mean, Chris Chris was actually saying this on the panel that we were just on. He said, you know, it used to be. Um, no, what did you say? No one in. If you did films, you, you didn't never write did television because that was a step down just, creatively. Yeah. Unless you, were you like, couldn't oh, get work in movies and television. And now, yeah, like all, all movie people want to work do in TV. television. What <laughs> do um, TV? It used to be if you worked in movies or TV, you didn't write comic books because then you you were low class. And now and then Joss and everybody started writing. As, and as a matter of fact, like my favorite story because this is so annoying to me because it's so typical of like Chris, like serendipity and Chris and like how things get done in this business. But so the way Chris met Joss Whedon is that they were coming back from, he, he got on a train to come back from San Diego Comic-Con and just happened to sit across from Joss Whedon. And he goes, and I swear to you he said this, he goes, I've never seen your television shows. 
And I had watched every television show Joss Whedon had ever made. And I was like, you sat down across from Joss Whedon and said, I've never seen your... And he was like, but I, man... I don't I'm... like to lie. I'm an honest person. What did you say to Joss? Astonish. Uh, no, uh, what, <laughs> I, I really... Sorry, I'm getting silly at the end of this. I really loved, I really your, loved your astonishing, astonishing X-Men, X-Men comic. comic. And so Joss, who is normally used to every person who ever is within 50 feet of him... You know, and he's like a rock star, and everybody crowds around him, and and of course they're, you know, people are obsessed with Buffy, and people are, and rightfully so, and, and you know, but he was so, like, I think he was so stunned that Chris was, um, not, you know, and only knew his comic book stuff, and literally Chris got a phone call like a short time after and was like, would you consider writing Angel for Joss Whedon? And I was like, that's unbelievable to me, like, I, you know. Of course, if I had sat across from him, I either wouldn't have known what to say at all, or I would have just gushed about his television shows for like two solid hours, and he would have been like, let me off this train so that I never have to see this woman again. Um, <laughs> but, but Chris, you know, that's how, so that's how Chris went to work for Jots. Well, well, I know, and uh, I have a couple more questions, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience, because I'm sure other people here have some questions as well. And they are very kind, because they've already been on two panels at AFF today. So I'm sure that they've, <laughs> they're, they're fading in the talking part of it. But, um, one question is, um, to what extent, or how do you, do you think about the audience at all, or who the fans are when you're writing, or how do you think about well, them or engage one, with them? Yeah. One of the interesting things about working for Netflix is it's all released at once, so you actually don't have to... Like on some shows, you you put you, you put out a few episodes, and fans might react online and say, "Oh, this character's too you know too mean," and then all of a sudden the network will be like, "You got to make this character more likable." We didn't have to worry about that, um, but it's interesting because, and, and this goes for comics for everything. I, I like to feel like you have to you have to. St- you decide what story you want to tell, and you have to tell that story. Once you start writing to, you know, now that's not to say that you can't take it into account for the next season, but if you, if you start just doing fan service, then it's, it's not even what they think they want, if, if that makes any sense. Um, I mean, I have a completely different idea about this. <laughs> I, no, like, I'm saying if, if I... If I did what the fans wanted, Buffy comics would be nothing but Buffy and Spike taking bubble baths together and, <laughs> and canoodling. No, but that's, I know, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but for me, like, I think, I think about what, I don't think about, I don't make creative decisions ever based on, um, like, it never occurred to me when we were discussing what was going to happen in our episode. Like, a fan would like this or not, but it was very important to me that we not be insulting to people that I knew were going to watch this show. So, like, I knew we were going to have a smart audience. I knew that they were going to know everything about these characters. And, but I also knew, by the way, that if I wanted people to watch this, because I'm not a comic book person, so I wanted people to watch the show to watch the show, not just because they were fans of Daredevil. So I wanted it to be a really good show, but it was very important to me that we be respectful of the audience. Have you gotten any um, sense of who was 
who's watched Daredevil or any data. I know Netflix well, is, is notorious. Netflix is famously it's, notorious yeah, for are, not revealing anything. Yeah, so you, did, you are no exception to that. They did tell us that it is the most successful series in Netflix history. And it was the most pirated series in Netflix history. <laughs> uh, and they beat Game of Thrones, which they were... In terms of piracy. In terms of piracy, <laughs> which they were thrilled about. I was like, it's so strange to have somebody, stand, like an executive, standing in a room with you so excited because you just beat Game of Thrones and piracy. I was like, wait a minute, that's somehow my residuals money going out, <laughs> out the window. I'm not sure I should be excited about this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they did tell us that. And they, and they were they were thrilled. I mean, you know, they, I, um, they were thrilled enough to apologize to me for uh-huh. telling me I couldn't do out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> But it's funny. It's like Marvel is so paranoid about protecting their brand and their property because of piracy, and Netflix is like, Woo, pirated. Yeah, I mean that that was that was a strange thing. That was a strange dynamic yeah. because Netflix love. I mean, Netflix would love. Not that for, I think they want to encourage yeah. it, no, but no, as no. an indication but, of, but of people's loves, interest, you know, for people to talk about their shows, and they love for people to enjoy their shows. So that was a very interesting dynamic because. Um, I think that Netflix was kind of taken aback by Marvel's secrecy. I mean, after like 14 months, they were like, at some point, guys, we have to, you know, like the writers and the producers, like actually, and the actors have to go out and promote this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so it was, that was kind of fascinating. But no, Netflix is much more, they're, they're just thrilled that people... Um, that it was so successful. For yeah, me. and they distribute the show globally, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and it, and it's very interesting because it opened up global markets for them that um, that they really it uh, you know I mean some of their shows like don't necessarily translate mm-hmm. to uh, shows about American politics. Right, like House of Cards is yeah, specifically about the American political system. Poli- political system, and a lot of people find that fascinating, but not on the same level as an you know, action an show. action thing like Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, I think that's actually a good point for us to move it to the audience to see if there's questions here. And I didn't even ask, get to ask about games. Maybe someone will have a question about that, um, or I'll fit it in at the end. But um, Tim is going to take my microphone and play the runner. Hello. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, did you mention earlier that you um, wrote some feature adaptations for some shorts that you had previously made? No, uh, from shorts, no. Okay. Yeah, we are. We did. Um, f- we wrote feature screenplays and a lot of adaptations for like books and things like that, but they haven't been made. But w- we actually did um, graphic novels from feature scripts that we had done, and then but then our feature scripts were all d- the things that were made and the things that have been made were all just they were all just screenplays. Okay. That, yeah. I, then I have no question. <laughs> Um, I guess this is ironic. Uh, in terms of Law and Order, like the legality of pulling all those articles uh, to draw inspiration from, like how close did you actually stick to the stories of the articles, no. or did you was it like creative freedom, like just drawing inspiration? From it, it was actually required that you had to, you could use a premise. For example, uh, one episode I'm sure you've seen, uh, some people find a dead baby floating in a cooler in the yeah. Hudson River. <laughs> that actually happened. That was you can't from the. From there on, you have to diverge. You can't follow the okay. story legally. Legally, yeah, that's so, um, yeah. And, yeah. And actually, you have to when you turn in your script on Law and Order, you have to turn in all your research to show where it came from. Um, now, interestingly, on one of our episodes, Ritual, they it was based on a story where they found the dismembered torso of a, a 
young boy in the Thames River, and they hadn't solved the case. And we what we came case. up with, we, what we came up with, turned out to be what it actually was, which was a child trafficking. Uh, you know, there was speculation: is this a satanic cult? Is this this? Is it that? And we we did it made it a child. And then trafficking we had another thing. one that wasn't shot, but we also solved that one. And then Dick Wolf was furious because we basically, hadn't shot if you it. have a crime, bring it over here. We got it. <laughs> why didn't we shoot this episode? And it was like, because you didn't want to shoot it. And he was like, but it's on the front page of the New York Times. And he was like, I know. And they solved the case. <laughs> it's funny thing about Law and Order potentially finding themselves in a bunch of legal battles. I do have one amusing story about yes. Law and Order. Uh, so the only, it's one of the only times they've ever been sued was ever one of our they episodes. They didn't actually do this. They, did, they dropped the suit. They but, dropped it. Um, Ice-T arrests a rich woman who has been buying kids from the the um, trafficking ring to use as domestic slaves. And he says, he's trying to tell her, get her to reveal where she got the kid. And he says, uh, or you're going to end up in prison, and that's not the Junior League. So the and Junior so the League, junior was, league was like, we're going to sue you. About and, this. and we were like, okay, fine, we'll rewrite it. So in a future episode, we'll say we were wrong. Prison is exactly <laughs> like the Junior League. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, okay. We won't Forget say, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't our line, by the way. Thank God. We got that. We got, because we had turned in all of our stuff and we got this phone call from the whole legal staff and they were like, the junior league. We were like, the showrunner wrote us. that. Talk we to like, talk to Neil. <laughs> Neil wrote that line. <laughs> I have a question about Daredevil in terms of uh, how do you write your fight scenes? Because I'm curious as to, do you, act, they're so stylized. You know, I'm thinking, of course, of the one that's an homage to Old Boy yeah. or any of them, really. Um, so, do you actually, in the writer's room, are you actually writing them out beat by beat by not, scene? Not in the writer's room, but when you're writing the script, it is pretty closely scripted to what you see. Having said that, we had some of the best stunt people in the business, Phil Silvera, Chris Brewster, and their team. Um, and they, when they were realizing it, they would put in some of their own little flourishes. Um, but no, for um, that hallway that, scene was very yeah, closely it was, scripted. It was written uh, that way. And as a matter of fact, I, we don't think that Drew actually ever really thought that we could pull it off. Like, we think that he thought there might be one or two hidden cuts in it. There were no cuts in the scene. So the scene was shot continuously for like five minutes. Those poor guys had to do it like four or five times. Yeah. We actually got two takes that worked. Um, but that it was so exhausting. They were, I mean, that was, by the way, planned and they thought that it would work best this way and the, and Stephen felt it would work best this way because the, that was the whole point was the character was supposed to be exhausted and we were supposed to see him be exhausted and fall against the wall and he was supposed to slump over and that was really going on because these guys were doing this as a single take and so everything was happening um you know continuously and but we to this day we don't think that Drew actually thought we were going to do could do it and the stunt guys and Steven pulled it off. So they were the ones that said, this is how we're going to shoot this and do this in one continuous take. So that, even though it was written exactly that way, and when we read it, we were like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Um, I don't know that anybody thought we'd actually pull it off. And then Steven made sure that it happened. But, but like, with our, with our action, so... It's funny, because Ruth came up with all the brutal stuff, like wrapping the chain around him and hooking him and dragging him and... And the funny thing is, I remember at one point when they, they actually, the, the stunt team actually worked it out on, on about a week's notice. 
Stephen sent us an email saying, can you believe we're actually getting away we're with getting this We're getting away with this. They're <laughs> letting us do this. Um, but everyone on the set was terrified of me because they were like, this is the most brutal thing I've ever seen in my life. And Chris was like, yeah, that was Ruth. She, like, and it was, it was true I, because that was how I had always seen it happening. And Chris wrote it. And I was like, no, this is not. This not is brutal not, enough. This is not how I see it happening. And I stood up and I was like, watch this. And I was like, so, he swings a chain. And, and I was like, and then he, it wraps around him, hooks him in the back, throws him on the ground, you drag him across the floor, and there's a trail Leaving of a trail blood. of blood, yeah. And then Chris was like, okay. <laughs> so, I am like, and it's so weird because I'm like not a violent person at all. I shot, I've shot a gun one time in my life, but almost always. She beats me daily. Yeah, and but but like in our graphic novel, all of the brutal stuff is like my stuff. And Chris would be like, this is going to be really difficult to draw. I don't think we should do this. I was like, no, that's how it's going to be. <laughs> So you two have had the privilege of working on some pretty big IP, and one of the big things I wanted to ask was, um, in terms of being able to work on those, did you all have to approach them? They approached you. How's the process worked for that? It, you, it, I mean, it varies for the most part. Wor you know, work leads to other work. Um, people you've worked with recommend you for stuff. Uh, I know that um, you know, it's it's a matter, and then you get a reputation. They, they say in comics, uh, you know, uh, you can you can get work by being good, fast, or nice. And if you are two of those things, you'll work pretty steadily. And if you're all three, you'll always work. Um, and so, for example, the Civil War thing I did, which was my big break in comics, uh, I had gained a reputation as being someone who is fast, delivers pretty good work fast, and also knows Marvel history. And that's what they needed for a Captain America Iron Man special. And they were like, we need you to write this in a week, and it needs to explain why Captain America and Iron Man, who have always been friends, would basically become enemies. Uh, and I was like, okay, no problem. Bam, and I did it, and it sold uh, really well. And that kind of, you know, I, I, I got a reputation as a guy who, when you need something done <laughs> on a timely fashion, that's who you call. So, um, but, and then in other cases, like, you know, Drew, uh, uh, you know, people like Drew, like Drew calling um, Brian Vaughn, yeah. who happened to be working with Neil Bear, our showrunner, and Neil was like, oh, yeah, they wrote uh, uh, Dick Wolf's favorite episode. I mean, that's, that's the way it all works out. And having said that, though, if, um, if you don't have the work, if you don't have the samples, if you don't have, like, if you haven't done stuff that they feel like, is the right kind of stuff, and they can see that you can write that kind of stuff. It's just impossible to um, to get a job. I mean, you know, we've had people read stuff of ours and come back and say, "Can you give me something? Like, I love this screenplay, but it's not exactly what this. You know, this is that happens in the business all the time. That's why I tell people write a lot of different kinds of things, and even if you think that, like, for instance, Friday Night Lights is you know, a family drama, it's, they consider it completely different from Lost. Even though Lost was a drama, um, they don't look at those things in, in even remotely the same uh, spectrum. You know, they just, so it's, it's frustrating in a way, even for us still to this day, and we've written a million, now we kind of like have a shelf, and it's like, oh, okay, this, 
this is appropriate for this person and this is appropriate for this show or whatever. Um, or this, you know, this screenplay job. But when we first started out, it was very, very frustrating because you would, you would have something that just wasn't right, you know, quite right. That's why I said we were very lucky with Neil Bear because the breed was, um, sure. genre it was a, film. a genre, it was a vampire film. Now there was a lot of sort of interesting like political stuff going on within, within that. Um, so he could see that when he was reading it, um, but that normally would never have happened. He, like, he only did that because I think he liked us and you know, he thought, oh, well, I'll give them a shot. Um, but you just usually you have to have a lot of different kind of work. Uh, regarding writing comics specifically, what's it like? Uh, like recently you did some stuff for The Secret Wars and for Spider-Verse. Uh, so what's it like coming in and doing a part for like one of the major crossover events? Uh, uh, it, it, again, it varies. Sometimes it ties in very closely, like a lot of the Spider-Verse stuff I did. Um, so for example, I did a book called Spider-Verse Team-Up. And... Uh, one of the storylines tied in very closely to the main Spider-Verse storyline because a, a character who was a villain switched sides and joined the good guys. So that one, there was quite a bit of close coordination. Then there was another one which was just a romp in which a modern-day Spider-Man, uh, two modern-day Spider-Mans go into the world of the 1967 Ralph Bakshi Spider-Man cartoon, and that was just fun. It was, you know, it was about the limited animation that they had in that world and how cheap everything looked and you know so it can vary like this latest one i did spider island they were like yeah we need a book called spider island and uh what do you think about that and i was like <laughs> how, how about something where you know everyone's been turned into spider monsters and the only way to save them is to turn them into different kinds of monsters and i want to put stegron the dinosaur man in there and i want to have him reanimate dinosaur fossils into actual dinosaurs and then i want to have a thor who's a dinosaur who's called Dinothor. <laughs> and, and Nick Lowe was like, great, do it. <laughs> so, so it, it, again, it's case-by-case case basis. This may seem like a really small question, but I'm genuinely curious. On comics and TV shows where you have characters who have secret identities and their everyday you know, identities, in the script, do you actually give them the separate names depending on which costume they're in or which case they're in when you're writing? Uh, that is a good question. I think it probably varies. Uh, I, In comics, I think it's much more common that in, if they're in costume, you give them the superhero name, and if they're in their civilian identity, you give them the normal name. In Daredevil, we called him Matt the whole time because he didn't put on the Daredevil suit till the very last episode. Um, but I'm not sure there's a hard and fast rule. Uh, I think in comics, the convention is that when when someone is in costume, you use their superhero name. But but you know, generally, unless there's several people with the same name, it's not that confusing. So it doesn't matter. I just have a question um, about, well, first off, Daredevil, and you mentioned that it is uh, sort of pre-written, or it's all released at the same time with Netflix. Uh, so question is, with the second season, are, did you, how much were you involved in the second season? And then, are you allowed to talk about that? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then also with The Lion of Aurora, why that story now? And uh, is that a passion project of yours? Or, you know, what got you involved in that? I'll answer the first question because it's really easy. No, we can't talk about anything. 
I will and tell I'll let her you, though, take the second one. So, so I can, we can say Drew Garner, the creator of the show, um, he had he had several seasons of the show worked out. Now, they were not worked out in like the in the kind of detail that we worked out season one. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen uh, in the future. <laughs> Um, and just in the future in general, uh, that you know that that Drew knew, uh, you know there were a lot of plans and a lot of things that were drawn up. Marvel is very, very much into the future, and they're very much into you know we're going to integrate these characters and and this storyline and that kind of stuff and pull them all together. So um, there there was a fair amount of stuff, you know that was. <laughs> That was decided, um, but and I think Drew has said that, so I think that that's okay to say. In light so the, of where so was the line it of war is my family ancestral history, um, and it was actually one of the first screenplays that we um, wrote together. We literally wrote it right out of graduate school. Actually, when I first started working on it in graduate school, I started working on it with Brad Falchuk, who runs American Horror Story. Um, if you can imagine, like. Work, like I adore Brad, but um, he he and I are doing a historical epic, um, and but I, so I kind of realized that I wanted to do something different and started working on a screenplay that evolved over time, and uh, I came to realize that it was going to be impossible to do uh, a historical epic set in the 1600s about religious history. Uh, and so I thought, you know, I should consider doing this in a different medium. But even as a graphic novel, it took us seven years to get it made. So we had four artists who quit because it's an incredibly complicated thing to draw a historical epic. And especially with me, because Chris, like I said, Chris would say, I, this is really complicated battle sequence and we have to cut this. And I would be like, no. And, you know, or this is really complicated to portray. And I was like, but if you don't portray it, you're not going to understand the ramifications of, like, the emotional ramifications of what's going to happen. And then fortunately, we finally, we had one guy who drew 100 pages and quit. <laughs> and he was like, I'm, my wife has given me an ultimatum. I either am going to get a divorce or I'm going to stop drawing this book. <laughs> um, so we finally got an artist, Jackie, who's wonderful. And she was also... Um, She's just so remarkable to work with because she's just completely up for a challenge. So she was never into, I know probably as an artist, she was like telling herself, she was probably intimidated to do a lot of the stuff, especially the battle sequences and stuff. But she never said that to us. She would just always say, I'm going to try this. We're going to go for this. We're going to go full out. And it was also incredibly complicated because I wanted it to be a book for which it was approachable for all ages, so for like adults, but also not really kids, but like younger, like high school students and stuff like that. I didn't want it to be like so graphic that, you know, I mean, <laughs> Daredevil was really graphic and we can certainly do that and we've done that, um, but I wanted it to be something that was more of a universal story. So she had a very, very complicated line to walk and she also knew that it was my history and it was, you know, like my, um, that it was just like my passion project. So she did an amazing, amazing job. And she did the whole book in like a year and a half, yeah. right? I mean, it was, it was remarkable that she did that size of a book in that period of time. That's crazy. Yeah. 
So I'm going to ask one final question that I ask of all of our guests. Uh, what are you watching now? What What is interesting you? I just got done watching uh, Fear the Walking Dead, which I liked. Uh, we're getting ready to start watching Friday Night Lights, which we've never seen. And, and we are... Which everyone watching. says is like one of the best. Take you on the Austin tour. Nice. <laughs> I mean, everybody says it's like the. I can't. I don't know why we didn't start writing, watching the show, but we must have been working on something. And and we're watching Fargo. Fargo. Um, which and, we're really enjoying. Yes. And you you were watching Better Call Saul. I haven't. No. I haven't. Well, what happened was my DVR recorded the first two episodes and not three and four, and then all the rest. So I have to wait for three and four to come on. <laughs> Uh, so I can record those and watch those, and then our watch DVR the rest does of it. this to us all the time. <laughs> I, I, like we have an evil DVR that we can never watch series. Um, we we actually just recently finished the Honorable Woman, which was a Sundance show, which was amazing. Um, Sundance BBC co-production, right? Yeah, BBC. Um, anyway, so cool. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much. This was terrific. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. To learn more about past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. This course was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with lead TA Tim Piper. And the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation.